weird. Hi, everyone. Welcome to First Draft Friday. I am your host, Alessandra Torre, and today I am joined by Amy L. Bernstein. We're going to be talking all about dialogue, and Amy has so many fascinating, fascinating tidbits to share, so I can't wait to jump right in. Amy, welcome to First Draft Friday. Do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, thank you, Alessandra. I am so excited to be here on Fast First Draft Friday. Friday. I've been a long admirer of you and the program. Um, I'm a, a multi-genre author. I can't seem to pick a lane. Uh, I released a novel just this week uh, called The Nighthawkers, which is actually a time-traveling paranormal romance, and that's out now and you know, getting some, some nice reviews. People seem to like it. And uh, in August, I'm releasing, uh, or Regal House Publishing is releasing The Potrero Complex, which is a dystopian mystery thriller. So I like writing across the genres. You really are. You're jumping way over. I'm the same way. I'm, I, I can't seem to pick a lane to stay in. Um, but one thing that does cross across every genre is dialogue. And um, this is a fantastic thing to talk about because as we discussed in the pre-call, Authors oftentimes love dialogue or hate dialogue, and typically if they hate it, they're just not yet comfortable with it. So I'm hoping that all of the um, tips that you share today will help ease their comfort level. So do you just want to jump into a little bit about why dialogue is important and, and why it matters in a book? Absolutely. I think about this a lot in my own writing, but I think about it also because for a number of years I wrote plays, which is almost all dialogue. And so you're constantly thinking about every word, every syllable, and, and the rhythm you know, that comes out of every character's mouth. I also was an executive speech writer in my earlier, earlier part of my career. So again, you're writing for the voice, which was, I thought about a great deal about the, the, the cadence and the pacing and the word choices um, and you know, how to build drama in a speech. And at a certain point, I also freelanced as a public radio reporter. And again, you know, you're writing for the voice. So when I turned to novels, it was really on my mind. And I think one of the things that every writer needs to think about, first and foremost, is how do you make your characters sound different from one another? Because sometimes I'll pick up a book and I feel like they all talk exactly the same way. And I think it's such an interesting thing to take a dive into how to differentiate the voices in your novel. And there's lots of techniques to do that. Should we talk about some of those techniques? Yeah, let's jump right in. Okay, awesome. There's a quote I absolutely love. It floored me when I was uh, doing all the research uh, for this, which I teach in a class, by the uh, author Elizabeth Bowen. She's an English and Irish author. She said, dialogue is what characters do to each other. And I feel like every person writing a novel should put that on a sticky note and stick it up on the computer or the yellow pad. Dialogue is what characters do to each other. Not dialogue is what characters say to each other. It's what they do. It's all about intentionality that comes out through words. I just find that so powerful and so fascinating. Does that so resonate with you? I do. Like, what is what does do mean? I mean, I know what do means, right. but, but what <laughs> mean when you say right. So doing implies action on the character's part of some kind. And action is going to set up expectations of reactions and interactions. So you've got movement in a scene, which produces some narrative movement, you know, and some energy. And, you know, it's it, again, it's why it's not she didn't say dialogue is what characters say to each other, which kind of can seem kind of static. It's what they do to each other. So you've got some kind of you might have you've got physical movements. You've got what we call action beats, which are those things that characters are doing between the words, which are so telling. And what they say and what they do may not line up. 
So it's a very interesting combination of things um, that you can begin to put together. I love that thought. And um, and so, and when we're talking about dialogue, just to clarify, dialogue is strictly verbal communication or can you have internal dialogue? And if, if so, would all of the rules that you're about to go through, or not rules, but suggestions apply to both? Um, that is a great question. I think that when we're talking about external voiced dialogue versus internal dialogue where the character is um, thinking to themselves. One of the ways to think about this is um, when a character is having internal uh, dialogue, they're really sharing their thoughts with the reader. When they're having something like stream of consciousness, they're really talking to themselves. And those are things that we can begin to differentiate. And I, I've analyzed some really complex scenes where you've got almost all of this going on at once, but you really have to be a master to do that. James Joyce did some of that. Uh, even, in, even in his more accessible fiction, he did some of that. So I, I think that the rules do apply, but they're used differently. Uh, and I have some examples that I think might show you a little bit of that. Perfect. So okay. Do you want to go into the examples? Is that what no. we're doing? Well, um, so I wanted to make three um, quick points um, about um, how, when you're structuring dialogue, what to think about your, your character is saying and why they're saying it. So the yeah. three, three things are that dialogue reveals knowledge. It reveals personality and it reveals intention. And uh, Robert McKee, who also wrote one of the definitive books about this, um, The Art of Verbal Action for the Page, Stage, and Screen, and I can share that with you later, um, he also had a great quote. He said, dialogue is the outer result of inner action, which is wow. a great compliment to what Elizabeth Bowen said, because it implies that there is action there, right? So here's, some, here's a really quick way of looking at that. Dialogue reveals knowledge. So a composer who's talking about music isn't necessarily going to talk about a piece being loud or fast or slow. They're going to talk about forte, pianissimo, andante. They're going to use their language. And that's how you're going to make sure that that character is really living in their experience. Um, uh, if you're talking about dialogue revealing personality, listen to how different these two examples are. One character might say, I made a dinner reservation for eight and I expect to see you there. Don't disappoint me. Oh. We know a lot about this person. We know an awful know, lot about this person. We know everything person. we need to know about right? that person. Right. But what if, what if, that, what if, it, what if the person said, I made a dinner reservation for eight. I know I'm asking a lot, but I'm really hoping you'll be there. That's a different person. Yeah. It's a different person, a different relationship and dynamic with exactly. that other person. Exactly. And that's how dialogue can really reveal personality, right? So the third thing is dialogue reveals intention. And here's where what the character says and what the character does may or may not line up, which again tells you so much about the character and lends so much tension and conflict to the scene. So here's an example of that. I'm coming with you and you can't stop me. Penelope scooted into the back seat and locked the door. So there she's showing conscious intention. What she does and what she says are all aligned. But here's a different example. Then go, leave me. I don't care. Christian gripped Leon's shoulder so tightly, Leon yelped in pain. Oh, so the character is saying go and physically holding the other character yeah, back. I don't care, but obviously they do. Sorry, yeah. I'm going to apologize. It's right okay. Now. It's okay. It's, he, the dog approves. It's good. The dialogue knows how important dialogue is. Yeah, yes. so, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's so much more to it, of course, but I think if you even keep those three basics in mind as you're going forward in your writing, 
how do I tell these characters apart? How do they sound different from each other? And you think about knowledge and intensity and what we call the action beats, which is what are they what are they doing when they're not speaking or in between what's happening in between the words? It takes you a long way down the road of making a scene really interesting and dynamic. And I really like that first one. I mean, I like all of these, but saying dialogue reveals knowledge because I think that is something, especially in newer writers, but in I have no doubt I've been guilty of it also. Um, we often talk through our characters. Our characters often talk in the same way that we do and that we think. And um, if we're not experts in a field, then oftentimes, you know, I mean, we would talk about something the way that we would talk about that topic. But it also can show your background and upbringing and how much general knowledge, you know, and education you have as well. Well, and let me make one other point about a general point about writing dialogue in a novel. Um, you want to avoid um, characters voicing extremely ordinary tra- um, transactional chit chat unless it's extremely to a point or building to a point. So you wouldn't want to have half a page where they're like, "Good morning, good morning. How are you? How are you? Would you like breakfast? I'm not hungry. Okay, have a good day at work." I mean. It's so boring, right? There's so much, so many other things they could say or not say or use action instead of words. You know, she slammed the cereal bowl on the counter here. You know, oh, we, we're, we're in a different place, right? right. So we, can, we want to avoid that quotidian type of chit chat. Um, we don't want that. We might do that in real life. But we don't want that in our novels. That's a great, I really love that tip. And again, it's one of those things that it, listen to it. You're like, of course, but how many times have we done that, right? And, and how many times have we inserted that? Um, do you have any other don'ts that you would suggest that they stay away from? Or do you want to move to the example and then point out don'ts through that? Um, oh, well, but you know what? Can we, I, I actually see a question in the uh, yeah. chat to me. Because uh, Michael's asking, how do you handle dialogue with ethnic components? Um, look, I am not an authority on this. And so I'm not going to speak as an authority. I'm going to share an opinion. Um, I think this is difficult and controversial. I think that if a white writer is um, trying to write what that writer conceives of as quote unquote, black dialect or quote unquote, urban speech or something along those lines, you are potentially stepping into a landmine if you don't have a tremendous understanding, integrity and sensitivity to what you're doing. I think it's really difficult. I personally would much rather avoid um, overly exaggerated um, constructions of words and speeches and let other other ways, this, let other aspects of the story convey that. But, I mean, even to the point of, let's suppose, um, Alexander, that you do speak with, that native, the English is not your native tongue, and you and I are speaking in a scene, okay? And I'm, I, am, I might be having trouble understanding you. I'm, I don't even have to say, she spoke with a very thick Italian accent. I can say, um, Alessandra, could you repeat that? You know, I'm I'm struggling to understand, and that the character could even have a self-reflection. You know, uh, she felt she felt so stupid for not hearing the words. You know, as they were intended. You know, was it her hearing? What was wrong with her? I mean, that's a bad example. But there's ways of doing this without having to drop an ing or exaggerate over the way a word is pronounced. There's so many other creative ways of dealing with that. Yeah, that was a great question. And I and I love your answer um, to that. 
I've lost track of what we were talking about. Oh, <laughs> we were talking about no, don't, don't. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's I think that's, that's kind of a don't. That's kind of about, right, yeah. right. Don't don't think that you're don't think that you're revealing character by 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 trying to imitate a sound of speech that is not standard English to your ears. That's not revealing character. So I think that's a pretty pretty good don't. Um, and this is a great time also when sensitivity readers can really earn their weight in gold. Um, so even if you are, it, I am oftentimes okay. concerned, it, you know, um, I feel like I am, I am staying clean inside um, a safe area, but that's when sensitivity, because you can describe a character in so many other ways other than just dialogue, but it's always something. Yeah. That's that, an excellent point to have to have a sensitivity reader. If you feel that you need to do that. Yes. I agree. Um, I think that another way to look at the don'ts is to go into our example of really great text and really bad text because there's a couple big don'ts in the in the bad text. Yes, and I'm gonna post. Um, I'm I'm hoping one of our. Oh no, I think it divided it all up. Oh, I apologize well, right now to everyone on YouTube, um, but we do have an example that we're gonna read out. And if it's not posted on Facebook, then a member of our team will post it. Um, but we're going to read it aloud. I'll read. Well, explain how we'll do this, Amy. Right. So um, what we have here are two passages from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, very at or near the beginning of the book. And um, the first example, um, Alexander is going to read the text exactly as Jane Austen wrote it. And then I'm going to read what I love to call the bad rewrite. And then we're going to pinpoint why the good rewrite, why the good, why the original text works so well, and why the rewrite does not, specifically from the point of view of how she does the dialogue. So have have fun with uh, with Jane Austen, Alexandra. Okay, fantastic. So here we go. Uh, My dear Mister Bennett said his lady to him one day, "Have you heard that Netherfield Park is let at last?" Mister Bennett replied that he had not. But it is, returned she, for Miss Long has just been here and she told me all about it. Mr. Bennett made no answer. Do you not want to know who has taken it? cried his wife impatiently. You want to tell me and I have no objection to hearing it. This was invitation enough. Why, my dear, you must know, Miss Long says Netherfield is taken by a young man of large fortune from the north of England that he came down on Monday in a chase and four to see the place and was much delighted with it that he agreed with Mr. Morris immediately that he is to take possession before Michaelmas and some of his servants are to be in the house by the end of next week. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm sorry for my male voice. (laughs) (laughs) There's Jane Jane Austen in the original. Now, um, open open your ears. Um, It's a little bit of chalk on blackboard, or it should be if you're listening carefully, but here's here's the way I rewrote the passage. My dear Mr. Bennett, said his lady to him one day. Have you heard that Netherfield Park is to let at last? Is that so, my dear, said Mr. Bennett, letting the newspaper fall to the floor. Wherever did you hear such news? I do wonder. Mrs. Long has just been here, returned she, and she told me all about it. Come, come, what are you waiting for, Mrs. Bennett? You well know, my dear, I am not partial to being kept in ignorance, as it were. I will be in better humor once you share all that you know, rather than withhold such information from me. No doubt you enjoy testing my patience, but really, Mrs. Bennett, Bennett, out with it. 
Why, my dear, you must know, Mrs. Long says that Netherfield is taken by a young man of large fortune from the north of England, that he came down on Monday in a chaise and four to see the place, and was so much delighted with it that he agreed with Mr. Morris immediately that he's to take possession before Michaelmas, and some of his servants are to be in the house by the end of next week. Okay. I'm going to kick off this little analysis by making a couple of key observations. And if we were in the class, we would do this together. In passage one, in the original, Mr. Bennett has exactly one line of dialogue. He says, you want to tell me, and I have no objection to hearing it. I can only picture Hugh Laurie in the movie who does that line so fantastically well. Mrs. Bennett does all the talking. She talks a lot. She talks too much. If you're going to have that kind of character, make sure they're the only one in the scene who is that kind of character. Because in the bad rewrite, if you haven't put a name to it, what's happening in the bad rewrite is you, the reader slash listener, are exhausted. There is too much being said, and it's being said too much the same way. He talks as much as she. He talks at length. He's boring. And she's boring, too. But she's allowed to be, she's allowed to be own the boredom. No one else can have that. Um, she can be the chatterbox. Nobody else can have that. In the rewrite, they're both chatterboxes and it's exhausting. And the reader is not going to keep going. The reader is going to be like, oh, this is terrible. This book's terrible. I, ugh, this is a DNF. This is a do not finish. So I think it's so important to take note of how you're balancing, not just how character reveal, how dialogue reveals the nature of the character. I mean, Mr. Bennett is this long suffering, taciturn husband. You don't know why he married Mrs. Bennett in the first place. We'll never know. She didn't, she wasn't able to write that book for us. Um, but you don't want them to sound the same. So that's a really big issue right there. And you can't tell their, 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 you can't tell their characters and their habits apart in the bad rewrite because they just sound the same. You can't even tell male and female because they sound the same. So that's, that's a big example. I love that. And I think um, and I think what is important is also what you said about um, consistency of character, but also how much they speak, because like you said, it's fine to have one chatterbox, but put two chatterboxes on the page and it can be exhausting. Um, so I love that. I'm going to put that in my do not do uh, column, <laughs> column as well. Um, we do have a question. Um, so and actually, we have two questions that are related to what we were talking about earlier. So um, one is Diane from Arizona. Um, so as a follow-up to the earlier question, how would you recommend describing when someone speaks with an accent? Um, for example, would you say something like, she spoke with an Italian accent rather than trying to, I'm assuming she's saying rather than trying to uh, distort the words or to use um, incorrect English at times? So the way, the way I would go at that is really put yourself into the scene, into the mind of these characters, who they are, what they need and want from each other, and what needs to happen in that scene. Because it's about so much more than getting hung up. And that's, I'm not directing that as a criticism at the person who asked the question. It's so much more than getting hung up on whether the person speaks with an accent. There have to be other things going on between these characters other than the accent. So I just feel that there's ways that you can almost work around or, or you can get clever like um, um, she spoke with an accent that reminded me of my last trip to top Tuscany, you know, yeah. or it's like, or like, it was words, so rare to hear an Italian accent. 
in right. that right, right. right. I hadn't, or, or her words, you know, her words brought me back to, you know, like that that great time I was in Venice or whatever. So there's creative ways of doing this where you wanted to reveal something about the character who's reflecting on that observation as opposed to simply making the observation. Because if you're simply, she spoke with an Italian accent, if it's it's not saying anything about the character who's noticing it and it's kind of a wasted opportunity to make it part of that character's self-reflection or maybe they have prejudices, right? And that's part of that character. Um, you know, I mean, something awful would be, you know, she talked like a mobster. Or, you know, like if this is an awful character who's got awful vibe, but the point is they're revealing that through their speech. So there's ways of handling it. Yeah. And um, so someone, uh, Edward was asking about sensitivity readers who said, do you really value sensitivity readers? Is it better to write what you know? Um, and I'm happy to answer this, but do you have... You, you, you run with it. You run with that. I'll follow you. Yeah. I Well, I'll say, Edward, I recently had a traditionally published book, which was well, I don't have a copy of it because it's not out yet. And um, the publisher had two sensitivity readers go through it. And they pointed out things that I had no idea were um, offensive or, I mean, it's just me and my limited world and limited knowledge did not realize, you know, that I was offending a group or with something that just didn't even occur to me. So I think there's that. There's also, there is write what you know, but in our world, we're often inside characters' heads that aren't us. If every character in my book was, you know, a white girl who'd been married, you know, <laughs> for 15 years, it'd be a very bland cast of characters. So oftentimes you have to write things you don't know. Um, so I'm not saying that every book needs a sensitivity reader, um, but certainly if you're stepping into areas that you don't know, um, then I think it's worth, and a lot of times, you can even find a sensitivity reader for free. Um, you know, it's not necessarily if you're on a tight budget, there are a lot of opportunities you can have just, and it doesn't have to be a professional sensitivity reader. It could just be someone, and it's not always a racial thing or whatever. It could just be, I'm writing about steel workers in, you know, I don't know where steel workers work, but in, you know, in some part of the country that I don't know anything about. And so I want to find a beta reader who's from that area or who has worked in that industry that can say we, you know, steel workers would never talk to each other like this, or, you know, this is, this, um, this item is incorrect. So that sort of thing is, is great to have. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's so, everything you said is so true. You know, we, we only know our lived experiences and we can't we try as we might. And, you know, a lot of us try, we can't see past our own lenses some of the time. And Alessandro, I think it's, it's so great that you would, it, admitted that notion that you were writing something that seemed totally, you know, just like n n normal and, and there couldn't, how could anyone possibly either take offense or think that, you know, you were throwing some shade or whatever. And yet there's a whole other way of looking at it that we just, we don't have that lens. So I think it, I think it's important. And I, I do think, I want to say that I do think every writer should have the right to write about anything they want. That's what imagination is. And we have to go where it leads us. But we do have an obligation, I think, to be careful and intentional and mindful about how we do it. And Michael, returning to our foreign, it's so interesting because it is an interest, it is something that I struggle with when I write foreign characters is how do you point out different things you're trying to create? Um, but he said, what about syntax? Sometimes the foreign, I hope I'm saying that right. Syntax is different than English. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't even, what is syn syntax? It, 
It's, it's, it's your use of grammar in a phrase. For example, you might put a verb after, after a noun or a preposition might be in a different place in a sentence than we would in, in American English. And Michael, I, I think that a little goes a really, really long way. I think you could do it once or twice, perhaps in a heated moment, that character's um, um, fluency in the second language falls away and the and the, what they call the milk tongue, the, the mother tongue comes to the fore. And so maybe, maybe the language conventions break in a heated moment and that's revealing character through dialogue, right? But I think a little goes a long way, and I don't think that um, it needs to be the way every, everything that comes out of the character's mouth. And again, other characters can reveal their 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 character by how they respond to the way it sounds to them. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. Um, so, do you want to return to the sample? Was there anything else you wanted to point out in that, either good things or bad things that were done in those um, two examples? Well, I think, you know, I think we went we went through it pretty thoroughly and I didn't think we were going to have time for another one. And uh, you want to do one? We don't have it in the chat. Do you want to do, do you have the other one in front of you or no? Yeah, I have the other one in front yeah. of me. The I really? It's a little cleaner. So don't worry if it's not on Facebook or yeah. YouTube. I think you guys can just listen to this example yeah. and, you, and you'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. So should I read version one? Yeah, let me just set this up. I just made these up. And here it's a very it's a different thing that we're listening for. We're sort of listening for when words marry action beats, by which I mean what are the characters doing between the words that help you understand who they are and is what they say aligning with what they do. So it's a different way of thinking about it. Yeah, go ahead and, and read um version one. Okay, perfect. And it may I should just read all of version one. We're not comparing like version one versus version two line by line. Right. No, no, no. Just read the whole thing. Okay. All right. Here we go. Terry lifted the burger with both hands and took a massive bite. Oh my God. He said, it's all squished together. Oh my God. He said, using his sleeve to catch a dribble of ketchup. This is like the best thing I've ever tasted. Like mm, amazing. How'd she know that he liked his burgers medium? Well, he wondered if maybe she was a mind reader or a witch, but a nice witch. Slow down, Tiger, Millie said. Chew, then swallow. Would you like something to drink? She filled a glass with lemonade. How about a napkin? I'll go get some. Okay, so before we move on, you're getting an inkling about how old these characters might be mm -hmm. and who they might be to each other. So he's using his sleeve to catch a dribble of ketchup. I mean, is this a suave, debonair, you know, it's either a kid or it's somebody who, right. Right. So That's something right. that he's doing, not saying, is telling you who he is. And his dialogue is simply aligning with that. And so the action beat plays a really important role. And then we get his inner dialogue because he's saying, how would she know he liked his burgers medium well? You know, he wondered if maybe she was a mind reader or a witch, but a nice witch. So, you know, we're thinking younger kind of guy, maybe a teenager, right? We don't know. Like, there's no, there's no sort of sexual energy in this scene, okay? And Millie is kind of motherly. She's like, chew, then swallow. Would you like, would you like a drink? She's like doing, she's doing for him, right? So she's taking that role of the, 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 the female helper, right? So you get all that from really like, it's only a couple of sentences. Now, I'll read passage two. Terry lifted the burger with both hands, shooting Millie a lascivious grin before taking a massive bite. Oh my God, this is like the best thing I ever tasted. Like, mm, amazing. I know, right? Millie said, smiling broadly. Um, you have a little ketchup on your cheek. 
She reached across the table with a napkin. Right here. Got it. Hungry much? Terry took another bite as if to prove a point. He couldn't get enough of her smile. So definitely not a babysitter child. Or... <laughs> <laughs> and so so here we, we've got a little hint of sexual tension or sexual interest going on, right? First of all, I came out and said lascivious grin, which is kind of lazy on my part, but I just I came out and said it. And um, she's smiling at him and she's like reaching across and like dabbing, right? So we've got physical contact and kind of in an intimate, right? So it's all there, right? I want to point something out though. His, his line is exactly the same in both passages. All he says is, oh my God, this is like the best thing I've ever tasted, like mm, amazing. But the context is totally different. So it's not only what your character says, it's how they say it, when they say it, to whom they're saying it, and what you've done with the action beats around it. Yeah, and now Millie's words are different. And it's a great example of showing how the way one character talks to another can establish their relationship, their age gap, if there is one, you know, and the differences and, you know, where they're at. Because in the first one, he's, she says, slow down, tiger, chew then swallow, how about a napkin, you know, that sort of thing versus um, you have some ketchup on you, you know, and um, and actually, like you said, having an excuse to touch him versus saying like, oh, let me get you a napkin, you know. <laughs> so um, so I love. Yeah, I love that rewrite. And it shows that dialogue shouldn't just stand on its own. Right. It should oftentimes have supporting or unsupporting actions. Absolutely, because you can find the most the most um, ratcheted up economy of words by letting their actions do some of the speaking for them. So the words and the actions are both important um, and both need to be woven into the scene to create the beats and to create the, the tension and the conflict. Yep. I love that. And we are already out of time, guys. If you have a final question, this is your last 15 seconds to shout it out. Don't be shy. But in the meantime, Amy, if they're interested in reading your new release or your upcoming release, where can they find information about your books? Everything is on the website. All roads lead to the website. It's amywrites.live. I've got um, some uh, sample chapters. I've got links to uh, my books that are out and that are coming up. You can join my mailing list there. And I, I do occasionally do good give, giveaways through the mailing list. So um, I love it. I love um, engaging with readers. So find me. You can also find me on uh, Goodreads. And that's all through the website, too. Thank you. Perfect. Well, congrats on your latest release. So it's always exciting. And, um, and if you have enjoyed this video, thank you, Eric. Please like it. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, also subscribe. If you're on Facebook, please join the group. And if you haven't yet met Marlo, she is our artificial intelligence that can read your novel in just a few minutes and give feedback. You can check her out and try her out for free at authors.ai. So I hope you guys join us for another First Draft Friday. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you so much, Amy. You are a fantastic guest. And I hope you all have a great week. Thank you. It was so much fun. <laughs>